Well, good morning. We're continuing to look at how to pray effectively, and a lot of the lessons I put together were born out of my own personal experience. And one of the areas of prayer that I discovered that I didn't do particularly well was praise and worship. And so it was born more out of my own personal experience to enrich that aspect of my prayer life, and I hope this is enriching for you as well, because I've discovered that praise in prayer probably takes the most time to do it right. And that's one of the reasons that up until recently, I never really did it very well because all of us are in a hurry. All of us have a limited amount of time. And often we have a number of burdens and concerns that we're bringing to the Lord in prayer. And so worship is something that either happens very quickly, like we acknowledge, we thank you, our Father, that you're omniscient or you're omnipotent, and then we move on. This morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Psalm 139, because David offers an individual praise psalm here that serves as a wonderful template of how we can enhance our praise and worship and prayer and the means by which he does that is by showing us that in order to praise, we need to reflect and meditate upon God. As a matter of fact, biblical worship, is that a little bit blurry to you guys? Or is it all right? My eyes are not all that great. If it's, if it's good, we're good. Um, biblical worship is comprised, thank you, Nate, it's... I realized I had focused it and probably not done a very good job. So it pays to have a guy who has great eyesight. So thank you, Nate. Um, that biblical worship is comprised of two key aspects. The first is reflecting upon the word. That will lead to a response. Worship is comprised of both of those elements. And if we reflect on the word in such a way that we magnify the Lord in our hearts and in our minds, it stands to reason that our response is going to be more profoundly uh, engaging, more of adoration and praise. And therefore, it produces a sense of awe, it produces a sense of reverence, it produces a sense of a renewed desire to submit and follow God's ways. And we're going to see this in Psalm 139. The psalm is broken into four strophes or units, and in each unit, David is going to seize one of God's attributes and chew on it for a while. And that's really what you and I need to learn to do in prayer if we're going to deepen our worship and our reverence for the Lord. Let's dive in. The first attribute that David is going to focus upon is the attribute of omniscience. And one of the beautiful things we're going to discover this morning is he really doesn't introduce us to any attribute that all of us are not already familiar with. But by reflecting on it, meditating on it, He's going to magnify the Lord in our, in our hearts to the point that we are impressed by his greatness and out of that moved to respond in a way that is appropriate to what we're learning. Notice in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Each of the paragraphs is going to begin with sort of a summary statement. So this is where he introduces the idea of 
the fact that God is omniscient, that is, he knows everything. Now he's going to take that truth and meditate it on, on it for a while. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, all, O Lord, you know it all. Notice he's reflecting on the fact that Christ sees every move we make. He sees us in our public life. He sees us in our private life. He sees us when we're working, and he sees us when we're at leisure. But even beyond seeing what we're doing, he searches our motives. He knows why we are doing what we're doing. He sees what we delight in. He sees our thoughts as they develop in our minds. And with that knowledge, he scrutinizes and measures. He assesses the value and the worth of the choices that we make. Now, it's in the reflecting on that that hopefully our Lord is being magnified in your mind. And if we want to do worship correctly in our prayer, we have to do it leisurely enough that we can continue to reflect on the fact that everything you do today is open to the eyes of the Lord. Every choice you make, every thought you have, every conversation in which you engage. And if that doesn't make our God big enough, multiply that by about 8 billion. Apparently, that's the number we're going to cross in November with regard to the world population. So he's not only able to track what you're doing, talk about multitasking, he's able to track 8 billion people, not just in a factual way, but in a familiar, personal, and evaluative way. Notice that as a result, in verse 5, he says, you have enclosed me behind and before you laid your hand upon me. So that he's moving into the response now, and he's taken back, but the Lord is not just a massive computer that is collecting data. The Lord is actually using that information to, in the words of the text, enclose and lay his hand upon both make the uh, conclusion that God is making us secure. He surrounds us on every side. That he's watching, using this knowledge in order to provide and protect for us. So this is not an a information apart from vital involvement. Notice he concludes in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it is too high, I cannot attain it. So that what he's basically saying is that this is so far beyond human capacity that produces a sense of awe, a sense of wonder, uh, a profound sense of astonishment. It's beyond our ability to fully grasp too great for us to understand both the detail and the amount of knowledge that God possesses. So notice in this first unit, he reflects on the word and meditates on it long enough that it moves him to magnify the Lord and his response is one of awe, not only in the sheer volume of information that God has uh, access to, 
but that he cares and uses it for the benefit of his children. Now, let me pause there. Any questions or comments, observations? Yeah. Two things. I was uh, teaching this once to a group, and uh, we as believers take this as comfort that the Lord knows us really well. Excellent. One lady spoke up, and she says, well, I take it in a different way. She says, I find it kind of scary that the Lord knows everything that I think and do, and I'm kind of threatened by that. Excellent. And that kind of took me back that uh, if we really worship the Lord, then it's great. If we don't, then it can be very threatening. And then the second thought is when um, it says he hems me in behind and before, um, I've always interpreted that also as he goes before me and he comes behind me. Excellent. Goes, in fact, it's a prayer I have often from that verse that he goes before me and prepares my way, prepares the people I'm going to work with, uh, that he comes behind me to clean up the mess that I made and the mistakes I made, and hopefully reinforce some of the good things I did. But it's really comforting that he goes before and behind and hems me in and hems us in. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. And again, this has a sobering effect on both directions. It's comforting. It's encouraging when you're looking for the Lord to guide and direct and help. It can also be sobering. Uh, my mother-in-law saw a little boy stealing a candy bar in a grocery store, a child about five or six years old. And so in a loud voice, she says, Jesus sees what you're doing. And he drops the candy bar and runs headlong out of the store. Uh, this, so it can, it can be a deterrent uh, to the degree that it is vitally um, connected to the choices that we make. Any other observations or comments? <clears throat> Okay, now, even in the context of this psalm, to really do it right, I would encourage you to work through this psalm, even one paragraph per prayer session, and just reflect on the magnificence of God's knowledge, because we can affirm doctrinal truths, but it's only when it gets from our mind to our hearts, and we appreciate the magnitude of the God that we serve, that it closes the circuit of worship and it produces that sense of awe and reverence that David experienced in the context of this psalm. Notice he's going to move now in verse 7, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? Notice that apparently it had the same sobering effect on David that was just shared a minute ago in that since God sees everything, he knows my sins. And as a result, the verb translated, where can I go from your spirit or flee from your presence is most often used of someone who is running in to, because of sin. Okay? So the sobering realization that David has come to is the fact that God sees all the wrong evil, and wicked choices that he has made. And as a result, he basically wants to hide. He wants to escape. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. The minute they knew that they had sinned, what did they do when God appeared? They hid. That's the natural instinct in response to sin. So notice that he's going to reflect on that fact and realize there is no place you can go to hide from God. 
He reads, the text reads in verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. So he goes up all the way you can go to the very abode of God. He goes down, biblically speaking, all the way you can go. The word Sheol can even either denote the grave or it can denote the intermediate state of the dead, the place where disembodied souls and spirit goes, which consistently in scripture is viewed as down. He then goes east and west. If I take the winds of the dawn or if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea. So he goes east and west. If you're in Israel, east is east. West is the Mediterranean Sea, so that's why he says the remotest part of the sea. He acknowledges that God is there. Then jump down in verse 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. So distance does not separate, neither does darkness. And so as he worshipfully meditates on God's omnipresence, he comes to the realization that we are never out of reach and we are never out of sight. And as a result, notice his response in verse 10, there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. So that he expresses the worshipful realization that just like a shepherd who never loses sight of his sheep, that God is present, he will catch us and he will bring us back. He gives guidance and he exercises his omnipotence or uh, his omnipresence rather to guide and protect his people so that he wants his people to walk with him and to allow him to guide and direct. So again, notice that as David sets a precedence of what l worship looks like, he spends enough time reflecting on the fact that there is nowhere we can go, that even the impenetrable darkness, now that darkness can be taken in one of two ways, and I think both are suitable to the psalm. It can refer, obviously, to physical darkness, that it can never get so dark in the evening that God loses sight of us. It can also denote the darkness of sin and immorality. You can go to the worst section of Indianapolis, and look to engage in the most wicked forms of activity, and God is still there. There's no place we can go. There's no venue that we can explore that will get us out of his grasp, out of his reach. And as omnipresent, he is always aware of what we're going through. Now, any comments, observations, applications that you'd like to make on this? Any? Yeah. By the way, this is my favorite song. Um, for good reason. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful reflection. The Brian song. Yeah. <laughs> um, early on, where it said I can uh, go the farthest reaches of the earth or over the sea, I prayed that before I went to do missions work. And it gave real confidence and assurance that no matter how far I would go, the Lord would be with me. 
Excellent. Thanks for sharing that insight again. And, it, and I can tell you've spent time reflecting on this some, and that's, that's the challenge that lies before all of us, that there's, there's no location, whether it's overseas, there's no uh, venue that will take us out of the watchful care of God. And again, all of these have a twofold application. It can be a tremendous source of encouragement and assurance if you're going to the mission field. It can also be a sobering warning for the believer who chooses to do like Jonah did, and because he didn't like what God had asked him to do, figures he can run from God. The Lord knew precisely where he was, even when he was in the belly of the great sea monster, he still was in the presence of the Lord. The Lord knew precisely what he was thinking and what was going on in his life. Any other comments, observations? Just a small story popped into my head talking about being around the world. And this is a silly story I know, but I was in, I think, Dubai for work, and I was in my hotel, sitting in the bathtub, just, I was miserable. I was lonely, I was far from home, I was just crying out to God a bit, saying, God, I'm just so... Where are you? What's all, you know, what's going on here? I'm just so lonely and I'm just miserable in my little whatever. And as the bathroom fogged up from this bath, some writing started appearing on the mirror in the bathroom and it said, I love you. Oh. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just somebody wrote that on the mirror before and it fogged up and showed it. It's like, while I'm in this, you're crying out to God. This whole thing just kind of happened. It just happened. Like, okay, God. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those, those are the kind of things you need to grab hold of when you're struggling as you were. And again, produces that sense of awe and gratitude. Because notice in all of these cases, God doesn't just collect this data. He uses it for our benefit. And again, that moves us to a sense of appreciation, wonder, and adoration. Okay, he's going to move now to talk about omnipotence. Notice that, again, omnipresence magnified to the point that we're never out of his reach, that he uses his omnipresence to guide and protect. Okay, in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. So now he's going to shift and reflect on omnipotence, particularly the act of creating human life in the womb. Wonderful passage that can have myriad of applications. Again, in this context, the goal is to produce a sense of awe at God's creative power. But there are a lot of other applications you can derive from this text with regard to the dignity of human life, uh, God's active involvement in the, in the forming of a child in the womb. But notice in verse 13, he basically affirms the fact that God was involved shaping us in the womb. Then in verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. So he he confesses that even as he was developing in the womb, the Lord shaped him in a secret working 
totally undisclosed to humankind. Unlike some of the other miracles that God performed over the past uh, of Israel's history, whether the parting of the Red Sea or the plagues of Egypt, this one is more mysterious. It's more secret. It's God working in the womb. And he uses the beautiful verb at the end of... um, Verse 15, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. This is a word that describes God's skill, his craftsmanship. As a matter of fact, for those who are doing this for study at the end of your notes, um, it doesn't occur that much in the Old Testament. And if you look at each of the passages, there are several key ingredients that lead us to conclude why David picked this particular word. It always involves the work of a craftsman, someone who is skilled. It always involves precious materials so that this craftsman is only working with the finest uh, elements and it always results in an object of unique beauty. And so, again, it affirms the dignity and worth of every single person in this room. You know, it's fun to pick on Tom Flynn and uh, to uh, have fun as a group. But there are things that Tom brings to this group that we would be sadly diminished if he were not to come on a regular basis. The same is true of David. The same is true with each and every one of you. Each and every one of you brings something to this group that is your unique contribution as designed in the image of God. And one of the joys I have before the session is to get to know each of you better than I I do. Some of you I know from church, some of you I've talked to before, but the more I explore, the more I realize the treasure that each of you is in the sight of God And the more I learn to treasure you, as I learn about your gifts, your skills, your history, uh, the way in which the Lord has been working in your life. And so David is marveling over the fact that there is no one like him, that each individual is a work of art fashioned by the hand of an almighty God. But as if that weren't enough, he's going to expand our appreciation even a little more. In verse 16, notice he says, And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Notice that I think in its basic sense, David is saying, not only did you craft me with a certain set of skills and abilities, but you created those skills and ability with a view to using me for some valuable purpose. That the idea of of recording our tasks, the length of our life, the work that he desires for us to perform, all harkens back that he has a plan, a goal, and a purpose for our lives. So that the Lord's creative genius is purposeful. It's not just, I think I'll make something pretty and then just sit it on the shelf. Everything he designs, including human beings, have a function that is divinely ordained as well. Notice this moves David to say, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. 
Notice that first of all, he's moved to a sense of awe over God's creative ability. Many of you in this room, one of the things I appreciate about you is your ability to build, to use your hands, to make things. And yet when you consider the intricacy of a human being, it excels anything that you and I can ever make. I mean, I'm, I consider it no small achievement if I can replace a light, light fixture in our home and actually have it work when I throw the switch, okay? That's the level of my craftsmanship. But look at how much more sophisticated a human being is. All the intricate parts and the interrelationship between those parts. Again, the more you reflect, the more God is magnified. But notice too in verses 17 and 18, he says, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, how vast are the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Even more than the craftsmanship is the sense of communion. He loves the word of God. And again, I can't thank you guys enough for being here because your presence says that you heart your heart is very much like David's heart, that you love his word, you love his promises, um, that our favorite pursuit as men and women of, um, men of God is to um, cherish, um, notice he, he says um, that they are precious to him, and I think they're precious not only because, first of all, remember this weaving together in the womb is a secret work of God. But in this book, we find out even those things that God is doing behind the scenes and in secret. But even more than that, this is the book that tells us what our purpose, our function, our design is meant to accomplish. And therefore, we cherish it because in its pages, we find our meaning, our significance, and our relationship with the true and living God. Notice he concludes by saying, when I awake, I'm still with you. It's the relationship that produces that sense of awe and reverence and love for the Lord. So that again, notice as omnipotence is magnified, it moves David to a sense of awe at his power and affection in which he prizes the relationship, that God made you who you are, he gave you the gifts, he has a goal for your life, but most importantly, he made you for a relationship with himself. And that ought to be our consuming delight as we go through this world. Now, any questions, comments, observations you have on this aspect of the psalm? Yeah. I have one. I know the struggle of purpose. And uh, I remember when I was in college, everybody wanted me, you know, what are you going to do the rest of your life? Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I wanted to do after lunch. <laughs> I hear you. So, and then I found out after you retire, I'm now, again, looking for that purpose. Excellent. And I, I think that just reading this and understanding that God does have a purpose for it, we just need to be attentive and Thanks for sharing that. Um, as I've visited with some of you in this room, there are a number of you that are in the same stage of life that I am. Uh, I retired early. The school I was working for started to have serious financial problems and they were starting to cut people. And so my wife and I sat down and looked at our books and said, you know, we really could retire now even though we hadn't planned to. 
And there were a lot of younger faculty members who had kids and everything else who really couldn't afford to lose a job. So I went to our AVP and said, I'd like to step down and you can have my salary to help out with the other faculty and things like that. So here I am, you know, figuring I had at least five to 10 more years and now I'm, I'm officially retired. Uh, I just went on Medicare, by the way, and, and Social Security. So now I'm, I'm really retired, okay? So our, our first game plan was to move near Rebecca's family. She has a brother who lives in Colorado. And to um, help him out in his church. He's a pastor. And Calvary University was going to open a, a Christian college, was going to open a campus right in the same town. Well, within the first six months... Bob basically lets me know that he doesn't need me at his church. And Calvary decides that Fort Morgan is too remote, and so they're not going to open the satellite there anyway. So I'm sitting there saying to myself, now what do I do? And I know those soul-searching hours where you feel useless, purposeless, and really seeking God's will. And Passages like this can bring a great deal of comfort as well as fellowship. If you're in that situation, there are several of us in that situation. And that's where iron sharpens iron. That's where brothers can encourage one another through those valleys as they discover what the next chapter of our life together looks like. But be encouraged because in God's book, This is one of the chapters. God knows the end from the beginning. He, knows, he works all things together for good. And therefore, he has a good and perfect plan. It's just our job to seek his will and to discover it. And that's why this book is so precious. Any other comments, observations? Yeah. So I've been uh, meditating on this one scripture, which is Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. Excellent. And you meditate on that, so he created these good works in advance of our birth. Going back to the womb statement, and, I, and it just it's hard to get your head around, but Excellent. it also provides great comfort as well, too, that he... He has created this environment for us to do good works to glorify him. Excellent. Two excellent observations. If you didn't hear him, he read Ephesians 2.10, for God uh, created us unto good works, which he prepared beforehand. So again, reiterating the fact that God's plan for us is purposeful. He also prepared them beforehand. Uh, and I've forgotten the exact phrase you used, Paul. Well, it was, it was, it's mine. Uh, you, you emphasize the worshipful aspect of it, that God not only knew it, he knew it in advance of our even being created in the womb. And if that doesn't blow your mind, then you're missing a key element in worship, it's in seeing God in all of his, his majesty that we're moved to that sense of awe that says, hey, he's got me covered. I may not fully understand it, but between his omnipresence, his omnipotence, and his um, omniscience, he knows precisely what he's doing. 
Any other comments, observations? But and it's something we have to seek as well. As it just, you know, uh, I think there's a two, two sides of the coin there. Excellent. Yeah. It's something you have to seek, and you have to guard your heart against going outside of the boundaries of Scripture. In other words, um, Colorado, marijuana is illegal, okay? So in the far side of my brain, I said, well, now I just check out of life. You know, I go buy enough to, to keep my mind thoroughly happy until the Lord calls me home. Well, that's not really an in-boundary option for my retirement as attractive as it might be. Uh, and sadly, though, there are people who say, I can't handle life, I don't like this, and they do make those kind of choices. Uh, you see people like that in Colorado all the time because marijuana is legal. They just check out. That's, so the Bible does help us form the boundaries of what acceptable options are and what acceptable options aren't out there. Excellent observation. Any other comments, observations? Okay, well then notice, now he's going to bring it in for a uh, conclusion. And we're going to encounter sort of a surprise, but we really shouldn't be surprised when we consider what it is the worship does. This is sort of the conclusion now that he's reflected on God's omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. And the Lord has become literally huge in his mind and his heart. His heart is filled with devotion to the Lord. And so he resolves to separate himself from sin to God. Notice in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking for a second, whoa, where did that come from? Uh, the vehemence is intense. And yet, it should make sense where worship creates the desire to be wholly devoted to God. And part of that is being separated from sinners. I mean, look at the people he's talking about here. He describes them as wicked, those who totally abandon God's word, abandon God's ways of doing things, and cause harm to the believer. He describes them as speaking the Lord's name in vain, taking the magnificent God that he has just reflected upon and using his name in a curse and an epithet, devaluing, denigrating the name of God. And as a result, it sickens him. And part of the reason I think that the world works or part of the strategy that the world uses is that when we, the world succeeds in lessening the, the majesty of God in our minds, we become more tolerant of sinful behavior. The two go hand in hand. When God is magnified, when his attributes are adored because of who he is, it moves us to a sense of realizing how utterly repulsive and abhorrent sinful ways of living should be. It creates in us an actual revulsion 
for doing anything that is contrary to God's word or treating God's name with anything but the utmost respect. And as a result, he first of all wants to separate from sin, but then he also wants to be separated to the Lord. But before we look at that, any comments on the separation from sin part? Again, pretty startling twist, but one that follows naturally from the more we worship the Lord, the more sin loses its grip on us. It's no longer as attractive. And sinners are no longer the object of envy because we recognize how foreign their lifestyle is from the lifestyle of Scripture. Just popped in my head, but this runs kind of contrary to the whole hate the sin, love the sinner concept. Excellent. To destroy the sinners. Excellent. Well, and, and I think these particular sinners are hardened in their resolve to oppose God. In other words, these are individuals who know the choice before them and want absolutely nothing to do with God. As a matter of fact, the only reference to God will be in some sort of derogatory or uh, way or curse. Um, David is just asking that God um, inflict the just punishment. What is the wages of sin? Death. So David's saying, God, I'm on your side. The wages of sin is death. These guys are heading that way. I don't want to be on the path that leads to death. I want to be on the path that leads to life. And as a result, there is an utter revulsion that, again, I think is a healthy byproduct of worship. Now, I think to balance this, we don't lose our compassion for the sinner. We want to see the lost come to faith in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I think the world does a pretty good job of producing an envy or a desire uh, to emulate some of the ways of the world. David would have none of that as a result of meditating upon who God truly is. Any other comments, observations? Given the concept of when this occurred, um, it's life. Yeah, I, we're not given context in uh, so, uh, but yeah, it does reflect a certain degree of maturity in his life. Uh, now, um, obviously, David did emulate sinners at several places in his life, and his life wasn't flawless in, by any means. But I think the reason that David was a man after God's own heart is because of moments like this. And that's my aspiration for each and every one of us, that we become increasingly men after God's own heart because of the level of devotion that we have to him. And that hits at high point here at the very end of the psalm. Notice that he's already reflected on the attributes of God. And as a result, he prays a remarkable prayer. Notice he says in verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thought, and see if there be any hurtful way in me. So given who God is, he asks him to train all of his attributes on analyzing, probing the innermost aspects of his personality. And as he does so, to assess, to sift, to sort 
good and evil. It's actually used of metals as they're going through the refining process. So refine every aspect of my being. Why? Because he's filled with anxious thoughts. Now this is the kind of anxiety that is actually a good thing. Having thought about who God is, having thought about the fact that God knows everything we do, everything we say, every thought we possess, now he's troubled because he's afraid that there is a hurtful way in him. Now, hurtful is the result of sin. It, David is struggling with the fact that he knows how deceitful our own hearts can be. They can fool us. We can think that we are making godly choices, and yet our our hearts can delude us into thinking that what is right is actually wrong. And therefore, David is saying, sift through everything that I am and guard me if I'm in the process of making wrong choices, if I have wrong attitudes, if I'm making wrong decisions, or if I'm engaged in any wrong behaviors. Out of that, notice he says, lead me in the everlasting way. And here's the goal. Worship properly done leads us to a desire to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. And that's where David is by the time he finishes his psalm. He says, you use your attributes for my benefit. So here we go. Use your omniscience, use your omnipresence, use your omnipotence to submit my life to the test. And you know, as I reflected on the psalm, that would be utterly terrifying. I mean, imagine the Lord was sitting in the room with you. Uh, it's kind of like telling a doctor, you know, analyze my, and tell me what kind of shape I'm in. I mean, that's kind of scary because I have yet to find a doctor who couldn't find something wrong with you, okay? Uh, I had blood work this past week and discovered my A1C level is up. Isn't that great news, okay? So, in other words, there's always something that a doctor can find if you invite him to scrutinize every aspect of your being. How much more the omnipotent God? But notice that God doesn't just scrutinize with a view to finding fault. He scrutinizes with a view to purifying and making us more like himself. And that's where David's heart is. He wants to be wholly conformed to the image of the God that he has just spent his time worshiping and adoring. And hopefully that's where we are at the end of our time this, this morning. I hope that our prayer as you drive to work, as you drive home, is that the Lord will search you assess that he will try each and every one of us. And if there are any hurtful ways, if there are any ways that are ultimately going to hurt us because they are contrary to God's character, his will, or his word, that they would be rooted out and that God would lead us in wholehearted devotion to him. Now, any comments, ask, uh, questions on this aspect of the psalm? Notice again, that worship ultimately ends up at this place where we have been so moved by God that we long for the intimacy of relationship with him that comes from following his ways and walking through life together with him. Anything you'd like to share? Yeah. Psalm 1. 
is the first psalm, I think, for this reason. Excellent. Blessed is the man. The word blessed, I think, enshrines everything that Psalm 139 is saying. Excellent. David has come to the realization how blessed he is. Excellent. And yet, the reason we need this kind of fellowship is because the world is going to try to convince you that there is blessing outside of what David has just described. And that's where I think Psalm 1 and Psalm 139 would agree that the ultimate sense of purpose, satisfaction, fulfillment comes in relationship with our Lord. Michael, you had a comment. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just thinking, uh, you know, when you go to school or seminary or something like that, you have to read a bunch of books and... You come across guys who are unbelievable writers and have some unbelievable insight about God, and all of a sudden you realize that person doesn't even believe God exists. Yeah. And as I was sitting here, I was thinking, you know, we've talked about just the the, the how to pray effectively in the sense, like the first thing comes out of out of every single passage we've talked about is just a personal relationship with God. Excellent. And so, going back to what Paul was saying, like the. The thing that comes to me when I'm when I'm down and when I'm thinking like, man, there's no purpose in my life is just to think about Psalm 139.14 and, and Ephesians 2.10, which says that I'm not God's workmanship in the sense that I'm, I'm the apex of God's creation. Excellent. And so there's, there's no better compliment to every single one of us men here today than to, to understand through a relationship that God has given us through Christ that we are the best thing he has ever created. And that's humbling because we know there isn't much good in us sometimes, right? Excellent. So, uh, yeah. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. I just, I think it's so appropriate to be going over uh, this particular song. Uh, my children both are in a position today where they're going to be working with other people, uh, guiding their lives as they move forward. My daughter and son are both up in Holland, Michigan, but the point being is, is that I want to share this with them just to say you've been created as a unique and wonderful person. Excellent. God has a plan for both of you. Excellent. That we don't really even understand yet is so perfect for you that, that you're going to have a, a chance to fulfill that. Excellent. And that's where this goes to a second level, is that I've, I've tried to share this primarily with regard to, to challenging our own lives, but many of you are in a position to, to challenge your spouse, challenge your children, challenge your grandchildren with the same general truths, because the world is going to work consistently to shrink our God and to reduce our abhorrence of evil. And worship properly done will reverse that process in a way that will make us men of God uh, who aspire to be led in the everlasting way. Well, Tom isn't here to stand up, but I, I can see him in my mind standing up because it's 10 of. So let's commit our time to the Lord and I'll turn you guys loose. Our Father, we do thank you for your majesty. And even in going through this text, we really have not done it full justice. And so I pray that each of these men would take time to, to reflect upon, to chew upon, to meditate upon the wonder of who you are, and that you would appear full size in all of your splendor and majesty before them. And that we would respond in our hearts with a sense of awe, a sense of praise, a sense of comfort, a sense of caution,
but most of all, a desire to deepen our relationship with the most wonderful person in the world, that we might find our meaning, our significance, and our purpose all in relationship to you, where there is truly eternal life. Toward that end, we commit this day into your hands, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.